You know, Austin, every once in a while, you just see a film that just inspires you to want to go out and make something. It's where a filmmaker's taken a small budget and used a lot of ingenuity and know-how to really just kind of make something really interesting and, you know, really inspiring. And this week, we are talking about one of those films. It is the 2013 Matt Johnson film, which I think, given the current state of news, feels very timely. That movie is The Dirties. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who is going to say it. All right, Austin, you were right. And I'm Austin Hayden Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, and I'm currently on cloud nine because it's very rare that I actually tell Keir something about film that he is either wrong about or unaware of. So do you want to tell them what it was? Do you want to tell them what it is? Or do you want me to do it? I'm really excited. Here, Keir, you tell them. You, you, tell you, them. you, you go ahead. You tell them. You, you, you bask in the glory. <laughs> um, so Keir and I obviously talked about Fahrenheit 451 in our World War film uh, battle thing that we did. And, uh, you know, we had briefly, briefly talked about how they were doing a remake with Michael B. Jordan and Michael Shannon, you know, two of our favorite actors that are currently out there doing their thing. And uh, the trailer the, was released, what, was it yesterday or the day before? I think it was yesterday. And Kier posted it on my timeline and I said, ooh, well, maybe this could be the first time that we talk about the original and the remake on the podcast. And then, of course, he came back with his snarky retort. And he said, but we're a film podcast, not a TV podcast. And I fully i knew like without a shadow of a doubt that it was a film but i just was trying to be polite and i said isn't this a film with three question marks like are, like maybe do you want to reconsider that statement that you just made and he said no this is a series that hbo is doing again i could i could sense that you were being like it's hbo dumbass it's a series and so again i was like are you sure with a lot of use and some question marks and then my next one was because i said and then i said because it's by HBO Films, dot, 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 and it's been billed as a movie for the past few months online, dot, 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 and everywhere you look online confirms this, dot, dot, dot. And then radio silence, and I heard nothing. So then I posted again under my comment, and I said, crickets. So I'm glad that the crickets and the silence have been broken now, and I can gloat. To be fair, I was at work. So, you know, that's my excuse for why I didn't respond. Yeah. Uh, I will say this, though. I was actually underwhelmed with the trailer. I know this isn't what we're going to talk about too much. We don't need to get too bogged down with it. But I kind of thought it – I said it in the comments. It looked a little too self-serious for me. And I kind of dig the kitschy vibe. So we'll see. But I will say the landscape, the sort of futuristic landscape seems to actually fit the vibe of the book a lot better um, than, you know, the sort of like new wave, bright colors, weird – uh, angles that uh, that Truffaut explored in his version. But what did you think of the trailer? Well, I think I think my first major question would be how do you modernize this in a world in a paperless world to make books um, the dangerous tools of information? Mm. That mm. would be my question. Yeah, interesting. I mean, they'd have to erase Wikipedia and online information, and they'd have to somehow. And I'm sure they'll. I'm sure like... they'll discuss that. It just it 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 feels like. The allegory of the books doesn't quite work in the same way it would have in the 50s and 60s. Mm, interesting. We shall see. But yeah, either way. Did you actually Michael introduce P yourself or did you just go straight into gloating? 
I mean, I did introduce myself, but the gloating was so joyous and authentic that you probably only focused on that. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, this week we've got a pretty packed episode because we are going to be talking about, in the reviews, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, Lady Bird, and Mute. Then we are going to be doing our official Oscar predictions, which is, of course, you know, one of my favorite times of year. And then finally, we will be discussing the 2013 Sundance sensation, The Dirties. Okay, Austin. So, uh, yeah, so I realized that when I went through my big thing at the beginning, uh, when we when we did our first kind of like live episode again, I um. I forgot to mention that I also saw three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which given that okay. it's one of the front runners for best picture seemed a little bit silly for me to have missed out. So I thought I would make up for it here. Mm, uh, okay. With a little quick, with a little quick review. Anyway, you know, three billboards is a film about a woman played by Frances McDormand, whose daughter has been raped and murdered. The film kicks off with her having already been raped and murdered. And she, Sets up, uh, she decides to, frustrated with the lack of action and success the police have had in catching the rapist and murderer, she uh, rents three billboards outside the town, um, in which she plasters the words, raped while dying, still no arrest, question mark, and how come Chief Willoughby? So this then kicks off a series of events um, around the characters in the town, uh, revolving around uh, the guilt and uh, frustration over the case and uh, brings up all sorts of hidden problems and uh, resentments going on within the community. So, yeah, this... Um, so, Austin, you've, you've not seen this, I'm assuming. I have not. I have not seen really any of the Oscar films other than Get Out no. or and Dunkirk and, like, Beauty and the Beast, if we're going to go down. But I mean, like, the best picture films. Dunkirk, Get Out, and I think that's it. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm curious, right? Like, so because I feel like there's two different worlds with three billboards at the moment in terms of people's reaction. I feel there's like woke internet world where it's the most evil film ever created, and it's everybody else where you talk to them and they love it. So yeah, it's kind of like a lot of my quote unquote woke friends, or let's say, and I, I'm using that totally ironically, but I mean my uh, yes. friends that. They aren't even like douchebag wokey types, so I, I don't mean to kind of throw them under the bus. But my friends that have like let's say progressive or leftist sensibilities, they pretty much overwhelmingly across the board have have um, expressed their dislike of this film. Which is interesting because I mean I, I'll lay my cards on the table. I love this film, and it's really been interesting for me to talk to people who when I have the conversation with them, it's almost like they, they seemed a little bit, uh, they seemed a little bit worried when they say to me, Oh, I really liked it as if I'm going to come back and like bite their head off or something about it. Um, and I think because, you know, people know I take film very seriously. So sometimes I think people are always a little bit unsure about what they're walking into when they state an opinion on a movie, <laughs> but you know, I suppose part of my Hold main problem <laughs> I have to laugh. We have to pause and laugh at that because that's like the understatement of the century. And I love that what? so much. <laughs> For some reason, that tickles me so much. The fact that you take films so seriously. And I'm just imagining people coming to you because you do. You, It's almost like you view the world through film, which is really interesting because we're going to talk about this film, The Dirties. But in a lot of ways, you remind me of the first half, at least, of the Matt character. Um, but... Uh, 
but it's so funny that I can just imagine people coming up to you like trembling a little bit like, um, Kier, did you see three billboards? And then I'm expecting you to be like, I fucking hate that movie. How dare you mention that in my presence? <laughs> Well, and it was it was interesting because I really went into it not really knowing what I was going to think of it because I I love In Bruges. I have a you know passionate love of In Bruges. I really dislike Seven Psychopaths. Ooh, I liked and, it, and I love In Bruges. I mean, I it's one of my favorite films of the last you know ten years or twelve years. And I've never and I've never liked anything made by the other McDonough brother. What's um, the other McDonough brother? Is it Michael McDonough or is it? Oh, I don't know. It's. It's, um, fuck, what is, what's his, what's his, that's, that's going to annoy me. Um, what's his, what's his brother's name? But this uh, is a joint project? He, no, 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 no. It's just kind of like they have, um, they have a kind of similar vibe to them gotcha. to, in terms of like the sort of thing they make. Um, I'm just going to look this up cause this is going to bug me now, but he made like Calvary and the guard. I was going to ask if he made Calvary. You didn't like Calvary. Oh, no, I hated Calvary. I thought it was fucking terrible. That was one of the most incompetently directed things I watched all that year. It See, that, was... that movie's like right up my street, man. See, in theory, it should have been up my street, but it's – it just – it an I don't know. It just – and I, I, I can't quite explain it. It's John Michael McDonough. Okay. So I think – yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but he made Calvary, he made War on Everyone, and he made uh, The Guard. Um, all films I did not like, even though War on Everyone was set in New Mexico, so it should have tickled <laughs> me more. Um, but, yeah, no, he just, it's just something where, I, I mean, it, it's its interesting because I think McDonough has a very kind of, I don't want to say nihilistic, but very gray view of the world, <laughs> which suits me in a lot of ways. I think, yes. I think there's this really interesting grappling with morality that kind of sits within both, um, both in Bruges and three billboards. And I think actually the thing with both of them is, and I think the thing that people find hard to take is that it doesn't settle on an easy stance. Cause the thing that I really, really like about this is the film sets, the film sets you up initially with Francis McDormand as your, expected righteous character and so and i think a lot of people go into the film with this expectation that she is essentially going to be this all-powerful badass woman who is going to just uh seek justice and i think there's an interesting critique that the movie is doing on the notion of revenge fantasy within popular fiction and especially within the setting of the western and there's no doubt that there's a very very big influence of the western in there because of course you know mcdonough's an irish filmmaker he's clearly enamored a bit with american culture um and i think but the thing that the film does is it moves to really paint mcdormand as a fairly difficult and difficult character with a lot of her own problems and it seeks to kind of muddy up all the characterizations to the point where you are kind of left with this world of gray unlikable figures Mm. and that's kind of what i dig about it and i think actually the thing that i find fascinating about it is that so often when i talk to people who seem to dislike the film it seems to come from a misreading of what i think the ending is i think it's reading into the film in a very simplistic manner and actually not looking at what the text is saying and i think this film ends on an incredibly 
dark and ambiguous note, which I think people seem to, some people seem to have read as some note of redemption, which I just flat out don't get. I don't Mm. get how you can watch that and think that there's any redemption for any of the characters in this film. Mm. But what I would say I think is really interesting is as a portrayal of the irrational, unstoppable force of grief and the desire for vengeance and catharsis through violence, which I think is rife within American culture. Mm. And I think on that level, it's really quite fascinating. And no, I really, I really, really liked it. It was a, you know, I would probably say I loved it. I thought it was a really, really fascinating film. I would happily watch it again. And I think it's, it's complicated and, and I, I think it doesn't pull its punches. And I think that's great. And I, I will say, too, um, there's a couple of things that I think that I don't buy into as arguments. So, for instance, people who say, oh, I don't like the film because um, the daughter character, you never see the rape and murder. So it just uses it as a device, which, to be fair, plenty of films do. This is not something that's specific to this movie. And this that's not what the film is about. The film is not about a raped and murdered girl. The film is about grief. It's two very different things. So it's like, it's, it's a, it's a common annoyance that I have where people criticize the movie for not reflecting their worldview rather than grappling with what the film is actually talking about. Right. Right. Um, no. So so the only thing that I wonder is, is do you think, what is the sort of progressive left woke, what is the their gripe with this movie? Well, the gripe is, I think, largely, well, one, with the idea that the daughter, the rape daughters uses a device. Um, you know, keeping in mind you have a complex and fierce, fascinating female character in the lead, but, you know. Oh, okay, so, a, so that, that, that somehow denigrates the humanity of, of, this, uh, of this woman who experienced this horrific crime? Is that kind of? Yeah, because okay. she's not really a character in the film. She okay. is something that she you, you start off with the murder having already happened. Oh, so you just like flippantly uh, use rape and murder of a yeah. woman. OK, I got that. And okay. then there is Sam Rockwell's character um, is a racist who has in the past, it's said, uh, supposedly tortured and beaten a black um, character. OK, um, which, again, you never see in the film. Um, but. At the, and then there's a suggestion by a lot of people that his character finds some sort of redemption. And so how dare this movie try to redeem a racist? Mm. Um, I, To me, again, you look at that ending, I don't really see redemption in any of it. Um, I think they try to bring some shades of nuance to Sam Rockwell's character, but I don't think in any way he's redeemed. And I think we're in a place at the moment where we want these very simple theses that that are there to reflect our specific worldviews. And I think the complexity of a character like Sam Rockwell is that he is unlikable, but it asks you to look at him still as a human character. And I think that's what people I think I think that is people's simplistic reflection on why they dislike the movie plus you know I'm, i also have a feeling too that I, I i do kind of feel like with the oscars everybody needs a front runner of the thing that they of the film that they want to hate mm-hmm. and i think for three billboards is in is is the easy is in a year where you have a very diverse group of people who've been nominated i think hating on three billboards is probably one of your best shots at finding something to be pissed off about this year okay so now i miss your abstract random not really correspondent ways of determining how you uh, rate this film. So do you want to just throw something out there? 
Okay, so yeah, so I will, I'll grade it in Oscar hosts. Okay. Um, so, uh, three billboards, I am gonna go with, um, John Stewart, you know, he's, no, no, you know, no, not John Stewart, I'm gonna go with Chris Rock, you know, he's, you know, he's blunt, he's out there, he's not to everyone's taste, but, you know, I think he's great. Okay, all right, what was the next film you saw? Uh, that was at a pinch, so I'm just going to say it. Maybe not be a perfect one, but, you know, I didn't, you know, I had to come up with that one on the spot. So anyway, <laughs> we are going to move on to Lady Bird, um, a film which is also in the Best Picture race and is the last of the Best Picture nominees that I had yet to see, which was a film that I will freely admit when I watched the trailer for, I rolled my eyes at because it looked like every <laughs> obnoxious Sundancey thing in one movie. Um, and you know, Greta Gerwig, she comes from the mumblecore background. There's an element to her, which is, you know, a sort of diet Lena Dunham element where you're kind of like, there is this kind of, <clears throat> she reeks at times of kind of New York intellectualism, which I will say is unfair. Cause that's not really where she's from and that's not really her background, but you know, she's Noah Baumbach's partner. There's a kind of there's a sort of overly admired indiness to her. And I, I hated Frances Ha because Frances Ha was everything that I find irritating about twee indie cinema. I love Frances um, Ha. You would love Frances Ha. But anyway, <laughs> point is, this film was set up in many ways for me to dislike it. Um, and I, so I went in with a fee and also, you know, I, I, I've also, Greta Gerwig to me has always been the one that stuck out as, she doesn't really deserve to be in the best picture race, best director race. And she's really just there because they wanted a woman to put in there when they could have just put D reason, who was a much more worthy um, nominee. Anyway, point is I went in with all of that as my background into lady bird, which is a film about a teenage girl played by Saoirse Ronan growing up in Sacramento in 2003 with a slightly overbearing mother who she does not get on with played by Laurie Metcalf. And it basically charts her year, her senior year as she kind of experiences various trials and tribulations and is also a kind of fairly obnoxious and self-centered teenage brat as most teenagers are. And I have to say that I actually really kind of loved this movie. Wow. Um, I was, you know, it was it was one of those things, which I, I like being able to feel like my preconceptions can be challenged and that I can sometimes be proven wrong, as was proven earlier in this episode. Because you know what? If I thought, if every time I went into a film, I was it was exactly like what I thought it was going to be, then it would be a boring fucking world, wouldn't it? It sure and would. And so... And so, yeah, I thought one of the things I thought immediately was I thought that what Gerwig's done is she's managed the tone really, really nicely. So as much as I don't think a lot of the content is revolutionary, I think what's really matched nicely is all the various performances with a really sort of nice, sharp script that moves quite pacily and has a very low key um, but very strong visual style. So while it's not necessarily about coming up with lots of complicated shots and maneuvers, it's actually very smart and effective in what it's doing. Um, and it certainly it feels to me there felt like a very strong director's vision, which in these kind of indie 
you know, kind of drama comedy things, there often doesn't. It it can feel like the camera work and the uh, direction was kind of an afterthought and is just there in a kind of utilitarian fashion. And that's definitely not what this felt like. You know, it felt like someone who had really put a lot of work into really thinking how the film was designed. And so, you know, and so I, I will say I came out of it saying, well, I still don't think she would be my choice for one of the top five director directing jobs done over the course of the year. I would say that I felt, you know, much more comfortable with her being in that category now. Mm. Okay. Um, and yeah, and I think, I think where the film really flies is the relationship between, uh, Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf. Because the ways that it creates this very uncomfortable and complicated relationship between this mother and daughter is, I think, just really good and really strong. And I mean, the biggest thing I could say against it is that it manages to not be as good as some other of the which I think is now almost a subgenre. The uh, mother and daughter don't get along while the daughter tries to navigate her outsider status in high school uh, movies, which I would uh, include Edge of Seventeen and Whip It in. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I still I I think I still think that this was this was really I, I enjoyed the experience of watching this film an awful lot. And the interesting thing is I've never really understood this idea that you can only understand, you can only see yourself in people of the same gender because there's an awful lot of parallels I could see between the character of Lady Bird and myself in terms of frustrations I felt as a teenager. And culturally, Sacramento isn't a million miles away from Santa Fe. And it's, this is, she's a senior in 2003. So that's like two years, uh, about two years older than me. Um, so there was a lot that was really recognizable to me about that time period, about that culture, about what she was, about what she was going through at that point. Mm. So, you know, I really, you know, I, I really dug it. Um, I think it's slight. Oh, um, I'm going to go with, Whoopi Goldberg. Okay. Um, I don't have a reason why. It was just the one that came to mind. And I like Whoopi Goldberg. So <laughs> okay. What, what was the final film? I, I like to watch clips of The Duncan View Jones. and listen to what Whoopi Goldberg has to say. <laughs> okay. So finally, final film we are watching is uh, the recently released on Netflix, Duncan Jones, long gestated sci-fi fantasy mystery called Mute. Which is, and I feel like Austin, honestly, this plot sounds like it was like written by like Mad Libs. So <laughs> Alexander Skarsgård plays a Amish mute who was injured as a child in a speedboat accident. Um, and he works as a bartender uh, and he has a blue haired... I don't know where she's supposed to be from, but some kind of foreign girlfriend waitress who goes missing one night and then he has to find her. He draws like little pictures and notes, which is the way he asks people where she is and stuff. And then you also have this sort of B plot where Paul Rudd and Justin Thoreau play kind of they are straight, but they keep calling each other like darling and sweetie. Um uh, surgeons who patch up like uh, injured gangsters and then uh, while 
Paul Rudd is trying to, he's an AWOL American army guy who's trying to get out of Berlin, um, you know, uh, with his daughter and he doesn't, he's, he doesn't have a papers to be clear cause he's obviously he's AWOL and he can't use his passport. And uh, that's, I didn't get an awful lot of this film. There's no reason mm-hmm. for it to be said in the future. I mean, this, this film really is a pile of shit. It is a complete, and fucking disaster to the point where it just makes you think has everybody just been wrong about Duncan Jones this whole time. So is this James Franco Um, hosting the Oscars? Sorry to jump the gun. (laughs) This would be James Franco hosting the Oscars. Um, Uh, Well, you liked Moon though, right? I liked Moon, but it starts to make you think if Moon just worked because the story was actually fairly simple and Sam Rockwell is a very engaging presence. I mean... It's interesting because this has been a project that he's been talking about for like eight years. Um, He's been trying to get it made since like After Moon. It's it's a script he's had forever. And you kind of think like, yeah, it actually reads like something you wrote when you were like 18 and Mm -hmm. haven't updated since. Um, And it's got I mean, I, I will say there's a whole bunch of people who are getting jumping on the whole kind of. There's a there's a subplot about pedophilia that a whole bunch of people have taken um, umbrage with, which I, I have to say the film was so fucking boring and stupid that I just didn't care about it. But it, it's one of these films where it sets it's it sets up all of these side characters and side plots, none of which have anything to do with anything. You know, it 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 actually ends up being the most simple answer it could possibly be to the point where you're like, why did I just spend? an hour and a half getting to this point when we could have gotten there in like 10 minutes. And Mm -hmm. Alexander Skarsgård is so fucking boring and tedious to watch. This He's given nothing to do. And it doesn't help that the actress who plays his, his girlfriend who I've never seen before. Um, she is terrible and she is, she, she has to do all the talking because obviously he can't speak. And the dialogue is just awful. And it's just, it is just, it is a complete and utter disaster. And of course, the the interesting thing about that is it makes you wonder, what does this say about the future of Netflix's kind of like, here's some money, we'll leave you alone, just kind of make whatever you want. Mm. But it's also, it's just so weird. Because like I said, this film has no reason to be set in the future. There's no element of this. You could set this today, not change anything anything and it would not make a difference yeah i mean i i mean to be that, honest, that, I, I have no desire to see this movie uh, don't 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 watch it nobody should see this I'm, movie I'm, I'm listening to the critics who have pretty much panned this film across the board i just it doesn't really sound like anything that would interest me all that much <laughs> i basically only so. watched it because i think bradley basically tricked me into watching because he wanted to someone to talk to about it like he was like <laughs> He was like, oh, my God, the third act is so fucking awful. You have to see it to believe it. And so then I was just like, yeah, this is, this is bored. It's was like if right? I had been in a fear. No, I just again, I'm just like a film this shitty. I just don't even know if it's worth taking offense to because it's just everything about <laughs> it's so shitty. So why do I care if one plot line is mildly offensive? And I right. wasn't even particularly offended by it because I just thought it was bad. Right. It's like it's a little bit like our our you know, our, our conversation about, uh, uh, you know, our conversation on Facebook about, uh, Killmonger and Black Panther. I think he's just a badly written villain. So I don't really care that much about the, uh, the, the philosophical implications of any of it. Right. Right. You have nothing to say cause it just doesn't even matter to you. All right. So yeah, cause it's, it's, bad. it's James Franco 
uh, James Franco. All right. So let's get let let let's let's talk Oscars, Austin. Segway. So uh, last year I did really fucking shitty at uh, predicting the Oscars. I got about sixteen out of twenty four, which is bad for me. My highest I've ever done is twenty two. Um, but normally I usually average somewhere between 18 and 20. Okay. What's, um, I can't remember. What did you, do you remember what you got last year? Psh, homie, I don't remember shit about shit. So, nope. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. I have no clue. All I remember is I beat you. That's the main thing. <laughs> so, in our, in our Oscar predictions, uh, so we're going to go through the categories and we're going to predict what we think is going to win on Sunday. So we're going to kick it off with the most important category, best animated short. So, Austin, do you have a pick for best animated short? Hold on here. I do. I mean, I obviously haven't seen any of these. So I'm going to kind of just look at the one that I think sounds the most interesting. And I like the title of Dear Basketball because I love basketball. So well, I knew you were going to go with Kobe. The, the Kobe – Kobe – If you realize if Kobe gets if, – if this wins, Kobe will have an Oscar. Yeah, and I mean it's in L.A. and L.A. loves Kobe. So I'm going to go Dear Basketball. Does Kobe love L.A. though? Uh, I mean yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, he, you know, he's setting up a bunch of businesses there, and he loves Southern California, we'll say. I mean, he loves Kobe Philly. Loves he's from That's Philly, and, and so, you know, he celebrated like crazy when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, so I know his heart is in Philly, but yeah, I think he loves L.A. Kobe loves Kobe. That's what I think. <laughs> uh, anyway, we don't need to linger on this. I will say, every year, I do terrible at the shorts, because I pretty much just pick them based off what the betting odds are. So uh, I don't. So I will just go ahead and say, uh, bet I have not seen any of the short films. I've gone with uh, uh, Decalb Elementary. I I don't know what that is. I don't know what it's about. I've just literally looked at the betting odds on it, and that's the one I decided to go with. Bradley always has a theory with the with the, as well as with best documentary that you. If Wait, that's a live, film about the Holocaust. Live, you go with that action. one. That's live action short, not animated. This is live action short, yeah. But I'll actually I'll get, I'll get onto that in a second. But okay, so I'll, I'll explain I'll explain his theory when we get to short documentary. But anyway, live action short. What's yours? What, what's the one you have? Wait, so what did you pick for best animated short? Best animated short. I also picked Dear Basketball. Oh, you did. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I did. I missed that part. Okay, so you got Dear Basketball too. Best live action short. I'm gonna go with. Um, I'm gonna stick with you at this point. I'm gonna go with DeKalb elementary and the reason is because we're going to separate later but at this point i'm going to kind of go with the betting odd as well so bradley so we're on to best documentary short bradley has a theory on this uh, which is you either go with the longest title or uh the one about the holocaust and there's actually shockingly this year there is not a best documentary short about the holocaust uh, is there one about like aleppo there's plenty of other depressing things to go with, which is why I've ended up with Edith and Eddie. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to go with Heroin, just because I like the title. Okay, well, that's fair enough. Well, you know, I mean, that is that is equally as rational and a reason to go for something as anything that I've gone for in yeah, the... Uh, I mean, it's in, clever. In it's like heroin like the drug, but also in parentheses with an E, like a female hero, you know? See? And, you know, with the Me Too movement, I think this is going to be a big theme in the Oscars this year. 
So women-centric films are going to do well. Okay, so best visual effects. We've got Blade Runner 2049, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Kong Skull Island, Star Wars The Last Jedi, and War for the Planet of the Apes. I am going War for the Planet of the Apes. Are you really? Okay, I'm going to go Blade Runner. So I'm going to go War for the Planet of the Apes for the sheer fact that I always think that the, the it's such a sort of big feature, the mocap element of it, that I think it's something that always hangs in people's minds. Mm. Okay. Okay, so we're on to best film editing, mm. which is one that I was a little bit, I was on the fence about, and I'm not totally sure about my answer on this, but I've decided to go for Dunkirk. Yeah, it's interesting because two individuals associated with Baby Driver are nominated, so you feel like the yeah. odds in terms of just numbers are in favor of Baby Driver. Baby Driver is – well, Dunkirk's also nominated an awful lot of technical categories. Yeah. Um, but I I would say I, – I mean Dunkirk's nominated in all the same things Baby Driver is. But I, I would I would say um, – I don't know. I, Baby Driver would have been my number two and there is – editing can throw out some weird ones sometimes. It's like the year – uh, the Born Supremacy won for best editing. Um, yeah, Inception won for editing. Like, um, it's not necessarily always like a prestige thing. Editing, I think. Again, it's you, you look for things that are kind of obvious. And I think, I think, I think Baby Driver could pull an upset here. I mean, it's also the I haven't gone for Dunkirk very much in this, but it's one of the few where I kind of said. I think it might – I thought it might actually do it. So I'm, I'm going to go with Dunkirk. Yeah, I'm going to go with Dunkirk as well, even though I think pretty much everything that Edgar Wright does could win editing. I know he's not credited as the editor, but he could probably win just with his visual style every single film he does. So costume design, we've got uh, Beauty and the Beast, Darkest Hour, Phantom Thread, Shape of Water, Victorian Abdul – I am going with Phantom Thread, and this is my logic, because it is a film with dresses in it. And again, I tend to think of the Academy as pretty simple, and my feel, my theory is people will look at that and go, well, they had to make dresses for that movie because it's about dressmaking. Okay, um, I like that logic. I'm going to go with Beauty and the Beast because I feel like every year in like – costume or in one of these sort of more obscure categories there's like a disney film or a film that's kind of light and fluffy but maybe it's got like bright colors seems to win so as soon as i saw it i said oh yeah and and definitely for costume design more than any other film this is like an inside baseball category like the audience don't really know unless you pay attention to this sort of thing who the individuals are who are nominated, but the people who are voting are all voting for people that they've worked with who have established themselves throughout a career. And so I, I don't really know any of these names, but I'm just going to say that Perfect Storm coming together, the costume designer on Beauty and the Beast, we got the light colors. She's obviously been around for a while. I'm going to go with Beauty and the Beast. Okay. So we're on to best makeup and hairstyle. I, we got Darkest Hour, Victoria Abdul, and Wonder. Um, I'm going to go for Darkest Hour because Gary Oldman in a fat suit. That is my entire reasoning for it, and I do not need anything else. I'm going to go with Darkest Hour because I just don't care about this category because I don't know any of these films. Okay, not, so not that, now, not now we're the, getting into... Not that the art, let me be clear, is not important. It is very important in filmmaking, but I don't know shit about any of these films. So, Except that, again, Gary Oldman in a fat suit, so... Yeah. 
This is this is why I'm this is why I'm kind of just racing through these early ones. But now we're into we're we're into one where we can sink our teeth into it a bit, which is best cinematography. So we have Blade Runner 2049, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Mudbound, and Shape of Water. Now, I have failed so many times betting on Roger Deakins. It has <laughs> every single the man has been nominated 14 times. And he's never won, right? Um he's never won. And that is why I am going to go for him again this time. Now, it is based off no other logic than there's some sort of sentimental thing that the Oscars feel like they do need to reward him finally. Because I would not bet on Blade Runner 2049 in this category under any other circumstances other than the fact that people are aware that Deakins has never won it. And he's done pretty well in the awards leading up to this. So I do think they're finally going to give it to him this year. And I just I don't think I I really I think the interesting thing is when you look at a lot of what people have said when they've done the kind of like uh, anonymous Oscar, you know how they have those anonymous um, Oscar voter articles where they ask um, an anonymous Oscar voter what they're voting. I think it's really fascinating how negative so many of them are towards Dunkirk. And I think it's a film that they recognize necessarily on a technical level, but I don't think they like and I think that's mm. the interesting thing about it, because I also think it's it's not a film I think Americans necessarily get, because it's not something that was very personal to them as a war story. So I I I'm actually think Dunkirk is going to be fairly washed out. So I don't see that as a big um, as a big uh, competitor. My only other thing is I did wonder if maybe the sort of historic element of Rachel Morrison being the first woman to be nominated will do it. But I still think Mudbound is too small a film to actually get any real awards traction. Yeah, I'm going to say that Mudbound is too small a film. Two, I'm going to say that her getting the nomination is her award. And and I know that Agreed. that doesn't mean anything, but I think that that's what the voters are going to think. And so I think that it's between Blade Runner and Dunkirk. And so I'm going to actually go with you on this and I'm going to say Blade Runner and Deacons is going to win. I kind of feel like I would rather be wrong betting on Deacons than be wrong betting against him, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, um, best production design. I'm going to go Shape of Water because that film looks fucking gorgeous. And I do have a feeling you look at its, you look at how many nominations it has got. You know, I think it's going to clean up in quite a few technical awards. Um, I'm going to follow suit and yeah, I'll go with shape of water. Um, okay. So for best sound mixing, we have baby driver, blade runner, 2049, Dunkirk, the shape of water and star Wars, the last Jedi. I, while I feel Dunkirk might be the safe bet on this, I am actually going to go baby driver because I think sound mixing, the fact that it's a film that's so comprised of how it uses music will make it possibly stick out more in Academy voters eyes. And I feel like it was a liked film. I feel like this could be a place that people want to actually reward it. I wonder if people are just going to have a negative emotion towards the film because Kevin Spacey's in it. And then that's going to even like if they're on the fence, then they're just going to go with Dunkirk. So I'm going to say Dunkirk based on that. Well, I, I think I'm right, so um, I'll, I'll, I'll not contradict you on that because then you might change your mind. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, best sound editing. 
Here I am going with Dunkirk. I like to split sound editing and sound mixing because if I'm right, it makes me feel smart. Um, so, because I think I think the impulse is usually to go just just pick the same thing for both. And I, and I this is possibly one of the areas where I just get too clever with my Oscar uh, predictions and then end up failing miserably. But I do think. I do think if you're looking at what the category actually represents, I think Dunkirk makes sense for sound editing and Baby Driver makes sense for sound mixing. I'm going to go with Dunkirk as well. Um, Okay, cool. So best original song. We have Mighty River from Mudbound, Mystery of Love from Call Me By Your Name, Remember Me from Coco, Stand For Something from Marshall, and This Is Me, The Greatest Showman. Um, I mean, I'm going, I'm going with Mudbound on this one just because it's a powerful song. I think it's timely. It's Mary J. Blige. So, yeah. I don't bet against Disney, so I'm going to remember me, Coco. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so original score, we've got Dunkirk, Phantom Thread, The Shape of Water, Star Wars The Last Jedi, which can I say, does John Williams need another fucking Oscar nomination for a Star Wars film? Like, really? At Finally, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, Dunkirk. I am going to go to The Shape of Water. I thought you might. Yeah, yeah, I thought you might. I mean, I think that because Zimmer was getting so much praise about, you know, like ticking in the background and the way they used that scale thing that everyone was freaking out about that I can't remember what it's called anymore. um, I think that they're going to... See, I think that technically Dunkirk does very well, or it could do very well, but I actually agree with you that it might fall a little flat with American audiences. And I also think that it's not peaking at the right moment. Like, it peaked eight months ago, whereas The Shape of Water is peaking now. But I still think that on certain categories, I think that Dunkirk is going to pull through, and I think this one is one of those categories. So I have I, I have not seen any of the best documentary nominees, which is bad because a couple of them are on Netflix, so I really probably should have watched them. But um, you have uh, Faces Places, Icarus, Last Men in Aleppo, uh, Strong Island, and Abacus. So I am going to go with Faces Places because I'm going with the betting odds on it because I am terrible at predicting best documentary. So this year I just decided to do some research and go off what I thought, um, what I thought the general consensus people were saying would be. I'm just going to go with the one that I've seen, which is Icarus. So Icarus. <laughs> I do actually think I, I don't feel good about this prediction because I, because Icarus I'm inclined to maybe think would pull one off just because it feels, it feels very topical. It feels very, um, and I just think, I, especially that narrative of it sort of, you know, blowing all of this information out there, I just think kind of like will put it in good stead. But part of me just kind of thinks like I, I often just think the simplest thing ends up winning the uh, the best documentary thing because it's to me, it's often not the favorite. It's the most easily digestible one. You also have to think that Hollywood is really obsessed with this Russia Gate conspiracy thing. And Icarus is all about the sort of power and sneakiness of the Russian state. So maybe that's another reason why they would vote for it. But you can't change your vote, so too bad. Next category. Um, okay, so next category is Best Foreign Language Film, which again I've seen none of. So you have 
Fantastic Woman from Chile, The Insult from Lebanon, Loveless from Russia, On Body and Soul, Hungary, and The Square from Sweden. Now, to me, it's really between The Square and A Fantastic Woman. And I'm inclined to go with A Fantastic Woman, if nothing else, because I think the zeitgeist would settle more in that direction of things. But I'm again, it's not one I feel massively confident about. What are the betting odds on this one? Uh, betting odds, I think, are slightly skewered towards a fantastic woman, but they're not All right, well, massive. Because I figure we've departed enough on so many other things, I'm just going to follow you on this one and go with a fantastic woman. Okay. So, best animated feature. We have Coco. The Boss Baby. Coco. Coco. The Breadwinner. Coco. <laughs> Ferdinand. And Loving Vincent. Coco, Coco. This is a shit show of a year in Best Animated. Apparently, The Breadwinner is amazing, uh, but we all know Coco's going to win because um, every year uh, Disney and Pixar win, and then they get more animators into the Academy, and then they just create an unstoppable juggernaut, which means they will always just vote for themselves. So Coco will win. So Big Boss Baby is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'm really – I'm going for the Boss Baby, obviously. No, Coco. Coco. It's all good. Yeah. Um. Cool. Best Adapted Screenplay, which is a fucking lock for me. So the nominees are, you have Call Me By Your Name, The Disaster Artist, Logan, uh, Molly's Game, and Mudbound. And as much as I'd love to be a sentimental person and vote for Logan, it's, um, you know, I, I think I think James Ivory for Call Me By Your Name is an absolute lock. I don't think there's any chance it's going to be anything else. Ditto. So, you know, I mean, you know, he's how old is that guy? He's he's almost 90. You got to feel like people want to people want to award him. And again, it's about like what films are peaking at what time right now. The films that everyone are are, that everyone's talking about are Lady Bird, Shape of Water and Call Me By Your Name. Those are the films. And a little bit bit of Phantom Thread. But those are the films. When I also feel like he's a dude who I think people are really obsessed with the idea at the moment of authenticity. People. And and so the fact that he's a uh, beloved elder gay filmmaker, I think, just makes, you know, people want to vote for him. 100%. For, for having written a story, obviously, a, a, a screenplay that's about a gay love story. Yeah. Um, okay, so best original screenplay. We have The Big Sick, Get Out, Lady Bird, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Now, this is a tough, this is a tough go- category. This is a very tough category, and this is the one me and Bradley have probably debated the most. Because there's quite a lot of things that I think are locks. This is one that I in no way feel good about my prediction on. And I have a reason for this, and it will become clear, too, when we talk about my best picture uh, choice. Can I guess? I am going to go with Jordan Peele and Get Out. I do not feel good about that as my—I do not feel confident about that, but that is what I'm going to go with. Okay, and is this your theory that this is the consolation prize for not winning Best Picture? Yes. Okay. Um, so I, I'll go ahead and say Get Out. I'm not predicting Get Out to win Best Picture. Right. I agree that it's not going to win Best Picture. Um, I'm gonna. I would love it for The Big Sick to win because I fucking love that movie so much. The Big Sick's not going to win. The Big Sick. Big Sick. It's again. It's just happy to be there. Yeah, exactly. I think that is the win. Uh, that is their victory. I'm going to say uh, Lady Bird. Uh, I don't see that one happen. My, 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 my other thing is, for me, it's between three billboards and get out. Because 
The Academy fucking loves three billboards. People are underestimating this. I swear to God. Yep. Anyway, we are now into the big name categories. Okay, so best supporting actor. We've got Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project, Woody Harrelson for Three Billboards, uh, Richard Jenkins for The Shape of Water, Christopher Plummer for All the Money in the World, and Sam Rockwell for Three Billboards. I think Sam Rockwell is pretty much a lock for Three Billboards. Yeah, it seems like it, so I'm going to agree. Plus, you know, people like Sam Rockwell. I mean, as much as you don't want to, as much as there's people who don't like that character, people still like Sam Rockwell. Yeah, but it's called acting. It's not called voting on a person's character in real life. So if you dislike yeah, the character, Austin, do you know how? Do you know how the fucking it, it all works? It's, it's it's totally a popularity contest. That is true. Anyway. So we're into Best Supporting Actor. we got Mary J. Blige for Mudbound, Allison Janney for I, Tonya, Leslie Manville for Phantom Thread, Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird, and Octavia Spencer for The Shape of Water. I am going with Allison Janney, I, Tonya. Yeah, that's what everyone is saying, and I get it, but I am going to go with Leslie Manville, the dark horse. See, see, that's interesting because Bradley has a Leslie Manville theory. He thinks that when it comes down to it, Allison Janney is uh, the Academy will look at Allison Janney as a TV actress and Lori Metcalf as a theater actress, and they'll end up going with Leslie Manville. Ew, interesting. Which is an interesting one, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with what I see as a fairly safe bet. Okay. Um, I'm not looking to upset any apple carts. Um, okay, so. Best actor, we have Timothy Chalamet for Call Me By Your Name, Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Thread, Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out, Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour, and Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel Esquire. And for me, clear winner, Gary Oldman, Darkest Hour. Elder statesman of acting, never been, never won an Oscar, and he's playing a historical figure. It's pretty much your in-the-bag type, uh, type nomination. The only thing I wonder is that this is supposedly Daniel Day-Lewis's final film, so I wonder if people would want to like give him a farewell parting gift. Or maybe if they're like, hey, we've already given him three, that's enough. I mean, I'm going with Gary Oldman, but I do wonder. Yeah, I, I kind of don't see – I kind of don't see Daniel Day-Lewis getting it, I have to say. I mean, to me, it's a very, very clear – uh, front runner. Like I think all of the other ones, I, I just don't see any of the other ones acting as major competition. To me, Daniel Kaluuya is just happy to be there. It's ditto Timothy Chalamet. Denzel Washington is like there just because he made a film. So Denzel Washington gets an Oscar it's nomination. Like the Meryl, it's he like the Meryl Streep thing. It's the, he's the Meryl. He's a Meryl. Yeah, he's, he's a Meryl Streep type. And Daniel Day-Lewis, I think, is great, but I don't think it's a showy enough performance compared to Gary Oldman. Okay. And I think, again, he's won three. So I'm not really sure anyone's sitting there going like, oh, he really needs to get one. Gary Oldman's never won one. I think it's Gary Oldman pretty clear. Okay. About as clear as it gets. And here's... This is a really strong category. You got Best Actress, Sally Hawkins, Shape of Water, Frances McDormand, Three Billboards, Margot Robbie, I, Tanya, Saoirse Ronan, Lady Bird, and Meryl Streep, The Post. See, the interesting thing is I think at least three of those performances, if you took out, if you made it a gender-blind category, I think at least three of those performances would be, um, would be, in, would be in the five nominations. Mm, interesting. So but, what are you going with? For me, it's Frances McDormand, Three Billboards. I think it's, it, you know, she's uh, such a respected actress, and she's also, she's been winning left and right, and I think it's such a fierce performance. And again, I think people really underestimate how much the Academy likes Three Billboards. Did Jennifer Lawrence get nominated for Winter's Bone? 
She did get nominated for Winter's Bone, yeah. Okay, so here's what I'm wondering. You know your theory, which has held true the last few years, that, and I've been paying attention, and you look back on it, how the Academy likes to reward the young ingenue in the Best Actress category, right? We've seen that over the last few years. Emma Stone, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Brie Larson. So we've seen that. So, you know, if the trend continues, you would think Saoirse Ronan. But what I'm wondering is, is does this role have enough teeth to it, or is this her Winter's Bone, so to speak, and so she's not going to win, but this is where this puts her into the, 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 the level where now she will be perennially nominated, you know, like uh, in, in the ensuing years. So that's what I wonder if that's why she might win because of the whole ingenue thing or if maybe this is kind of like, no, this is her introduction to her being now in the category of potential and her next film or her next film where she gets nominated, she wins. So for that I think reason, if she was in a less competitive year or in a more powerhouse film than – Maybe that would hold true, but I think against Frances McDormand and Sally Hawkins, uh, you know, much stronger performances. I just don't think she'll. I think I think you know her winning an Oscar is kind of inevitable. It'll happen at some point. But I mean, she's been nominated. She was nominated for Brooklyn. She was nominated for Atonement. You know, she's what twenty four already has three Oscar nominations. She'll she's gonna win one eventually. It's just kind of like I don't think this is the year or the performance to do it. Okay. Yep. Frances McDormand. Um, okay, so best director, we have Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Jordan Peele for Get Out, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread, and Guillermo del Toro for Shape of Water. I think this is the year that the third one in the Me- in the great Mexican triplet filmmakers finally wins, finally becomes the last one to win the Oscar. Who is it? Inaritu. Inaritu and um, Koran. So oh, yeah, Inaratu has two for Revenant and Birdman. Karan has one for Gravity. And so Guillermo del Toro, he was the last one. So Shape of Water and the uh, the 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 tripod is complete. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna agree with you. I just think I, I think that's a pretty nailed on one. I'm, I don't see that. I don't I don't see that change. Agreed. Um. Okay. So and finally, here's the one for all the marbles. Best picture. We have Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I think woke film Twitter is trying really hard to convince themselves that Get Out is going to win Best Picture. I think they're going to be sorely disappointed. I think Three Billboards is taking it. Three Billboards. Interesting. I'm going to go Shape of Water. It's not a bad bet, Shape of Water. I can't say I think it's going to win. But I really, I don't know. I'm gonna go. I'm I'm pretty confident with my three three billboards prediction. It's okay. done incredibly well in the lead up to this. Yeah, interesting. Okay, cool, cool. All right. So, but then you never know. I mean, who knows? Maybe someone will read through billboards out and it'll turn out get out one. <laughs> so, does someone get like uh, extra points or anything like that for our versus series that we're doing, or how does this work? Well, we don't have any points to. Maybe we should. Maybe I, I'll tell you what. Maybe what, someone what, one what person we're doing gets thirty it for seconds is an less. Extra turn. In we're doing it for an extra turn. An extra turn. An extra turn. Film. Film choice. So rather than you know how we go me then you then me then you this one uh, this one you get an extra choice one okay. week. Deal. Can you hear me? 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 
Can you hear me? Sorry. We're making a movie. Okay, action. You know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in France? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? No, you idiot. I should be doing this whole thing with Bane. They call it Royale with cheese. Our movie is about two students in a school who get bullied by this gang called the Dirties, and so they decide to take revenge on them. They snipe them from a long way away. Get dirty with the green bandana. Let's blow his dick off. Guys, just watch the piece, okay? And then there's a scene where the dirties are, are doing cocaine and we jump in with guns and we're like, die, cocksucker, motherfucker. Uh, you guys gotta make some changes. The, what did Muldoon say? You can't make a school shooting movie? If we made a movie where we went with real guns and actually killed only the bad guys. Yeah, that's what we did in our movie. But if we actually did it, just blew them away. Get up! Sorry. You know, Larry, we're coming to school with guns to kill you. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead. Wait, what are those? The blueprints of the school. And I've got them all marked off. Like what each room is for and like who uses each room and when. Okay, so The Dirties is a Canadian, I guess you call it, it's a found footage um, sort of comedy drama uh, it rides a lot of kind of like weird and interesting lines, but basically the film revolves around two characters, uh, Matt and Owen, who are also played by Matt filmmaker, <laughs> who are, yeah, who are played by Matt Owen, uh, Matt uh, Matt Johnson, the director and writer, and Oliver Williams, uh, who co-stars in it, and I guess Owen. you could kind Owen of Williams. say. Uh, also writes it because essentially the entire thing is pretty much improvised. Um, And essentially they are two kind of dorky high school guys who are obsessed with movies, especially Matt, who kind of relates everything through movies and everything is a film reference. Um, And we kind of follow them as they are attempting to make a movie called The Dirties, which is all about how they are two detectives who are trying to hunt down a group of bullies called The Dirties um, and uh, murder them. Uh, when they, um, and this is sort of intercut to with sort of a lot of scenes of them being sort of horrifically and really kind of badly bullied, um, where like they are kind of like really like visibly, physically and verbally abused. Um, and so they make the, they make their film and, uh, they screen it and, and the, uh, the teacher who's in charge of the film class kind of says they need to cut it back because it's too violent. It's too, they doesn't approve of the swearing in it. And so they cut it back and then they show it to the class and the class kind of laugh at them. And so they decide, you know, sort of dejected. Matt comes up with this idea that, Hey, we should make another film. But instead of it being like about us, like, like pretending to like go and shoot them, like we should actually just do it. Like we should do it and like film it. And then, you know, wouldn't that be hilarious if, like, rather than us, like, pretending to, like, go and shoot them, like, we were actually just shooting them. But it's like, you know, we wore these shirts that said, hey, we're just here for the bad guys, and, like, we're just killing bullies. Um, and then it kind of, it, it moves forward in this really kind of odd way where you don't ever totally know just how serious Matt is and how kind of, like, how kind of deluded within this kind of film world he is. And I think... As the film goes on, you start to see this kind of slight rift between Matt and Owen as Owen becomes more and more um, concerned about Matt's break from reality and his kind of and this plan to essentially, you know, kill these bullies. And you kind of wonder how much Owen ever actually believes this is a really serious plan. And 
this also coincides with Owen sort of managing to become friends with uh, one of the this girl he has a crush on and sort of hanging out with her a whole bunch, which causes Matt to become more resentful. And the film kind of ends with this kind of pretty disturbing scene where Matt um, sort of makes his way into the school loaded with guns and proceeds to shoot a couple of the bullies. And when everybody kind of runs away from him, he chases after Owen and the film kind of ends with him saying, hey, it's just me, you know, as if like he seems confused as to why Owen is at all worried and concerned that he's just shot these two bullies. Mm. Um, And I mean, part of the interesting thing with this movie is not just the movie itself, but also the story behind it. Uh, Matt Johnson was a guy, he's a Canadian filmmaker who essentially had made a kind of web series, uh, which was highly improvised and done a lot in just on the street, kind of uh, using real members of the public. And basically, he managed to uh, convince this school to let him film in there for a week, posing as a student. And the school was apparently very supportive of this project because they thought it would be bring a lot of, you know, light to bullying. So it has these kind of scenes of the actors mixed in with these real scenes of them interacting with high school students, creating at who at times aren't even aware that they're being filmed, uh, which creates this real sort of strange sense of authenticity. And the line between reality and fiction is kind of constantly blurred, not even within the film's narrative, but also when you're watching it. And it is just a kind of really weird, fascinating rumination on the nature of bullying and uh, kind of notion of angry young men kind of who are alienated from, you know, popular society. And I, you know, and I, I thought given the states of, you know, the conversation about gun violence at the moment, this was a really fascinating movie to have a look at. So Austin, what did you think of The Dirties? Yeah, so this is the second time that I've seen this film. I saw it a few years ago when I was in L.A. I was dating a Canadian girl who was doing some work with Matthew Johnson. And um, and so she was like, hey, there's this young, hot filmmaker. You got to check out this this film that he did. It's just creating mad buzz on the festival circuit. So I checked it out, and I was blown away from uh, blown away by it. I, I love it. I mean, it's pretty much everything that I, that I appreciate about low-budget indie filmmaking. You know, I love people with interesting ideas and people who can actually turn out a good performance and do so within uh, budget constraints that are really non-existent. I mean, I know that that filming cost about 10 grand to make and then I think they had to put in an extra 45 grand for music licensing. So, um really it's a it's a $10,000 film. Um it's a $50,000 film and then of course that doesn't count distribution and things like that. But, you know, it's a $10,000 film and and what they got is a really lovely messy but polished if that makes sense it's messy because it's meant to be messy but it's polished in that it's well constructed it's well edited the music is good the acting is good the message is powerful and um and it's just done in a way that you can tell that the filmmakers and performers are all skillful in their crafts um and then this is the second time i watched it and obviously the cultural landscape is very inflamed right now with the issue of gun violence in schools, um, particularly after this most recent shooting in Florida, and the 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 activism that has kind of fallen out from that that has really caught fire in a way that it hadn't that it hadn't in previous 
similar events, which unfortunately in America occur quite frequently. And, um, and I think it created an entirely different worldview, uh, or, or maybe not worldview, but perspective, let's say, as I was watching this. And I, I found myself being a lot more affected emotionally this time around. Like it actually, by the end of the film, when I knew that the actual shooting was coming, my, my heart rate started to speed up and I started getting uncomfortable and um, I started getting a little bit anxious and it really did actually affect me in, in um, a, quite a profound way. So it was a fucking interesting experience to watch it, that's for sure. I mean, I think, it's a, I think this is a really, really excellent film. I really do. It's not, I mean, it, it's weird because it kind of like blurs the line between an easy watch and then not an easy watch at the same time. Like the first part of the film is actually really quite jovial and you don't really know, like you said earlier, you don't know how serious Matt is. Is, is he actually going to go through with any of this or does he just live in this fantasy world and he's always just joking and he's never actually touching reality whatsoever because everything for him is a simulation. And so he's always acting. He's always performing. He won't actually do anything because you don't do anything when you're acting. So he's no threat and he's no, he's no harm to anybody else. And well, then I think all that's sudden, the interesting thing is he's not – he's at all times – he seems like a very unassuming guy. He seems like, I mean, he seems like he seems annoying, but you always feel like, like, I, you know, I was sitting there going like, I feel like I could beat the shit out of this guy. It doesn't, he doesn't seem like he, he's, there's no intimidation to him as a character. Yeah. Owen actually seems like the one that has the dark edge to him. You know, um, when, when Matt's being all jovial, Owen's the one who's pensive and, He's got the, the the straight face, and he's the one who's been spurned by the girl. And so you might actually even think, because you know a lot of a lot of the um, the shooters that have like written notes and things like that have talked about, you know, part of the reason was because they were outcast at school and that they couldn't get any uh, romantic involvement with the people that they that they wanted to be involved with. And so Owen actually almost seems like more of the dark brooding one that could potentially be the actual threat that that sort of takes seriously what Matt is simply playing at. But that's not how it ends up. And it's it's really it is very interesting. And I think it's it's really impactful because it kind of it, it, it reverses the expectations maybe based on those two characters. Well, it's, it's interesting too, because I think if I compare this to a movie like, um, like, uh, Gus Van Sant's elephant, which I think is a giant bore that people like want to, you know, it's, it's, it's my, it's, it's, it's a go-to example for movies where people wander around and nothing fucking happens and you get to like infuse whatever you want into it. You know, I, I think the interesting thing about this film is how much it kind of rides this weird line between like these two characters are kind of fun and goofy to watch. They're kind of entertaining and they're kind of weird little dorky double act. They're great. And that's the thing. Great. But that's the thing is they're not at all intimidating. And that's no. what's so interesting about it is that the way that the film works to normalize them and make you like them is something that people I've, you know, I could see a lot of people being like, how fucking dare you try and normalize school shooters? But that's, what's disturbing about them in, yes. in so many ways is that there's that little part of you that really doesn't believe until he actually pulls out that gun and shoots him, that he's actually going to do it. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually, I think it's important to humanize school shooters. It's important to humanize people that we otherwise turn into monsters and um, we can we can be in shock and 
and find horror in the acts of monstrosity, but to try to 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 reject the other elements of the person, I think one makes it so that we can't really understand motivations behind these things, which I think is really important. Um, but but two, I think it also just creates a sort of um, it's a diminished view of how we can understand the world. And the more we just simply uh, either monstrosize people or the more that we just simply kind of reduce things down to the the sort of basic components that we can understand so that we can just try to like put a cap on whatever that thing is, the the more that it trains us to be lazy in our thinking. And, the, and I think that has like far-reaching consequences. And so I think one of the things that was so interesting is right before Matt is about to to carry out the shooting at the end, like you said, you don't know what's going on. He's setting up these GoPros around camp, around campus, and you're like, interesting. So he's still making a movie, you know, and he's making sure that the person whoever's following them is that he's, you know, that he's ready for it and he's talking to the camera like he's priming that person. But he's sitting downstairs below the below the stairwell and his alarm goes off. And I was sitting there thinking, and, and he's like chatting with the, with the teachers beforehand, you know, like, oh, I'm a student. I'm just here a little early for school. And he's very calm and very human. And it made me think like this guy that went into this school in Florida, before he went there, did he wake up in the morning and kiss his mom goodbye? Did he text uh, somebody and say, hey, what up, man? How's it going? Um, even if it wasn't that morning, did he do it the night before? At what point does the, the switch click from that to the sort of state of of monstrosity or the act of monstrosity and and then even during the acts of monstrosity is it rational like matt even he's like hey man don't worry i'm just here for the bad guys he even says it as he's carrying out the actions right because he loves the idea of the tagline in the movie because he's always like saying all these taglines from all these movies that he loves um so he's like he's still got this rationality this this rationale let's say that is driving him and it's really fucking it's really sobering to watch it, and I don't know. I actually think that this film, as much as it's kind of like this small, low-budget film, is really fucking profound on so many different levels because of that. Well, I think I think it's really interesting because obviously there is a level to which I could very much understand and sympathize and empathize with Matt as a character because, again, as you pointed out, <laughs> you know, I you know I'm I'm someone who you know, somewhat lives life through the language of cinema, through the language of media, you know, and it's so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it's interesting how much I feel like his touchstones are like your normal high school douchebag movie touchstones. I mean, he's not like going out and like finding like French new wave cinema, or he's not like, you know, experiencing like, uh, avant-garde or anything like that. He's like, he's like, yeah, let's quote Pulp Fiction. Let's have this reference from being John Malkovich. Let's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, or even like the fact that he, when he goes like, um, oh yeah, the the club's called the rectum. It's just like the club in irreversible. It's, it's like, he's, he's so kind of like steeped in this idea of like, cool hip cinema and it's just the thing he aspires to be and it's kind of fascinating to watch to you know because you can dissect some kind of um some kind of psychology just from the type of film they're making the the immaturity of the need to be like oh yeah they're going to be snorting coke and they go to a nightclub where there's like lounge singers but of course like it's them playing the lounge singer because they can't because because they can't like get a girl to be involved in it and the thing that was so interesting too was i was not a guy who um i was not one of these guys who like grew up with a video camera and was just always making films like i didn't actually shoot anything until i was 20 21 and part of that was because 
I couldn't have like roped people into making something with me. Like mm. I loved films, but I couldn't have like gotten someone to make a film with me. And there's a sort of weird alienation, obviously in the fact that it's these two guys who they're making these films together, but they can't actually get anyone to be in the films. Hmm. Yeah. And then, and then Matt loses himself in that. Whereas Owen steps out of that, like Owen steps out yeah. of the film. The film world. When it's interesting, too, because, of course, the thing that prompts this movement is him being able to become somewhat more socially confident, being able to interact with actual people on a real human basis rather than purely through the lens of this camera. Mm. And, of course, the thing that's interesting is because we are only seeing Owen and Matt's um, interaction through this kind of played out interaction on camera. And that's the thing that's interesting is Owen even points this out at a certain point. He's like, why are we filming this? What is what, you know, just stop acting like you're on camera and just talk to me like a person because all we see, cause the, the sort of central conceit of this film is that we are watching the film that was created by the character of Matt, you know? So at, at all points, it's like Matt is acting for the camera. So it's, it's that, it, it's that weird thing of like, you have this very, um uh formal concept of two act two two characters acting for the camera while Owen tries to actually break that cycle by trying to get Matt to talk to him outside of the form of this performative element. Yeah, it's uh it's a very meta film. Um and a lot of times that can come off as kind of cheesy or it can seem like just simply some sort of wanky art house film student endeavor but it actually serves this film really well because it it contributes to the reality if you will it contributes to 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 the to the immersive viewing experience and i really felt that this time i don't remember exactly like my emotional response the first time i watched it because it was a few years ago but i will say that that i know i enjoyed the film or at least i thought it was a good film i don't know if you enjoy this type of movie but this time around I felt immersed in this, and I think that a lot of that is um, is due to that formal device, that meta-formal device where found footage films a lot of times can come across as cheesy, especially anymore after like Blair Witch Project when there was this explosion of found footage films, especially within the horror genre of people trying to do interesting uh, interesting things that I think fell flat on their face because it's kind of it's not as interesting if it doesn't have any novelty to it. But there's something novel about this, and maybe it's because it's it's in a different context and it's not within the horror genre. I mean, I don't know. I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But it worked really well by being able to suck me in. Well, I think I think there's an interesting element too to which this film is dissecting the idea of how um, of how so much of the way um, youth interact now is through um, this facade of, you know, the camera. And, and, you know, it's it's the way you have that point where you have Matt editing the film in the film, talking to the camera about looking at himself on film and mm. him sort of saying it's it's weird how when you watch something happen to you, 
it feels like it's happening to somebody else, you mm. know, and it, and it, it, it's like that. There's this constant sense of the distancing, how, you know, how trying to relate everything through film allows himself to distance himself from the reality of it, you know, and I and I and I think actually the interesting thing is I, I think the thing that's smart about this film is that I don't think the film is trying to go to go with the thesis of, oh, he watched too many movies and that's why he went crazy. I think I think the I think it it more acts as the films are a retreat from the process of the bullying. It allows himself to distance himself from what's happening to him, but also allow because I mean this the bullying scenes are suitably really brutal and yeah. cruel. Um, you know, I mean there's there's a bit where Owen gets hit by a rock and it sort of produces blood. You know, they mm. they'll they you know they kick him and punch him. Like the bit too where he sort of grabs his hand and just sort of like humiliates him for like an extended period in the hallway by saying, Why won't you let go of my hand and just pulling him around. You know, it's like it's because stuff like that is not just the physical violence, but it's also the kind of like the, the humiliation in public of 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 that it is is what's so intense about it, and so it's interesting how you know him talking about the notion of being able to watch himself being bullied on the screen and how he can distance himself from it because again you start to feel how him living himself his way through this through the camera through the idea of being in a movie allows him to distance himself from all of this stuff that's happening from him hmm. I, I really wanted to talk with you about this because I know that that you really dislike the sentiment that is common that was really was common after the Columbine shooting that you know that these guys went crazy because they were listening to Marilyn Manson and I know you hate that that people aren't violent because of violent films and this film it does seem to kind of walk that line with not necessarily that he goes crazy because he watches Pulp Fiction but it does seem that there's an element of how there is some sort of interesting nuanced relationship between Matt and his being lost in the world of fantasy. So, and and I know you just kind of gave a nice explanation of, of kind of how you view this relationship, but I I think we could even talk about it a little bit more. And do you think there is an element that that sure he's using film as a sort of coping mechanism to escape from the brutality of of being bullied every single day? But then is there also a sense that? that maybe the film is, whether intentionally or not, kind of articulating this idea that that film sort of gives him a certain set of tools or ammunition so that he can then carry out carry out these actions that he wouldn't have otherwise. So is there also a well, sense I, I, that this film is implicated? Yeah. Well I suppose I suppose let me talk about this on a on a on a practical or more sort of scientific level. Okay, so how many people do you think have watched the movie Pulp Fiction? Yeah, it, millions of that percentage how many of them have committed school shootings yeah uh, I if it's mean, even if it's you know if it's even 10 that's still a minuscule amount of people within the the grand population which suggests pulp fiction is not really causing people to create to to go create mass to to go uh commit mass violence you know it's 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 one of those because it's such a cop-out answer because it's such a, a simplistic idea of cause and effect because you know it's it's the same way to me that if you say football is the cause of football hooliganism 
people are the cause of football hooliganism. Football just gives them an excuse to do it. You know, nobody watches football and goes, this has made me violent. Just like nobody watches Pulp Fiction and goes, this has made me violent. Now, in theory, I suppose, somebody who has some kind of frustration or anger towards the world could watch Reservoir Dogs and say, oh, I want to go cut someone's ear off now. But it wasn't Reservoir Dogs that made them do that. And the in my in my heart of hearts, I would believe if you are the type of person that watches Reservoir Dogs and goes, I really want to go cut someone's ear off. You were going to do something fucked up anyway. It wasn't Reservoir Dogs that caused you to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. I mean, I think that this is a really complex issue. And I think one of the, the things that gets missed in this is that there is it's difficult to understand causation, right? Like what is it that actually causes someone to go and do something? I mean, it's a myriad of factors. And so it's to reduce it to this person listens to nine inch nails and then they go and shoot somebody up. Therefore, Trent Reznor is to blame for the Columbine shooting or something like that, or to blame for goth culture. And that, that, that is an asinine argument and it's an overly well, it's, 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 argument. I always, I always liken it to the argument. Um, did you ever see the episode of the Simpsons where, uh, they have, where the bear gets loose and, so the townspeople run amok and um, demand a bear patrol. Um, and then um, and then, uh, uh, you know, Homer like is standing around. And of course, it's like it's one bear got loose from like the zoo or something like that. <laughs> but anyway, Homer standing around going, ah, well, I see no bear. So the bear patrol must be doing its job. And Lisa goes like, well, that's. That's pretty ridiculous thinking. I mean, by that logic, I could claim this rock keeps away tigers. And he goes, oh, how does it work? She goes, well, it doesn't. It's, it's a rock. But I don't see any tigers around, do you? And Homer goes. Lisa, I'd like to buy your rock. It's, <laughs> and it, it's, it's, yeah. but that's it. You know, it's kind of like there's no real causation to prove any of that other than a loose tangential connection. And the problem is that um, we as humans, part of what allowed us to evolve was an ability to view patterns and things. But sometimes, I mean, it's, 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 for instance, what, you know, in theory within primal times, uh, you know, one, you know, uh, if you realize that when you, um, people eat a certain type of berry, they die, you stop eating that type of berry. You know, it's, it's things like that that cause humanity to survive. However, that desire to seek out patterns also sometimes misplaces where we look for things. So it means that you sort of say, so, so you, you want a simple cause and effect. So something is as complicated as the idea of why two, two teenage boys decide to go shoot their classmates and murder people. Um, you know, if you can, if you can boil it down to something as simple as say, oh, they listened to this music and that's what made it. It means that you don't have to actually reckon with an awful lot of really complicated and dark issues within, you know, society. I mean, it's mm. the same as why, I mean, I remember listening to someone talk about like how, um, for a nine 11 truther, like the idea that nine 11 was this giant government conspiracy is actually a very comforting thought because it's much scarier to believe we live in a world full of random acts of violence and people who will commit sort of who will snap and go crazy or, you know, have some kind of buildup of pressures and problems that cause them to do awful things. The idea that there are just random people out there that can commit violence is a terrifying idea. The idea that the government is an organized group of evildoers who, in theory, you could uh, you could fight against is far more comforting than the fact that somebody could just come out of the darkness and kill you. Hmm. 
Yeah. And so and, and that's it. That's it. So if you can say if you can liken school shootings down to something as simple as saying, oh, well, Marilyn Manson, they listen to Marilyn Manson. That's why if we just ban Marilyn Manson music, then everything's solved. That makes life a lot simpler than trying to say, OK, we need to reckon with a lot of deep problems within society. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't necessarily agree or disagree with anything that was said. It's it's interesting provocations. What I what I do wonder, though, is to what extent does the desensitization towards violence manifest itself in activities um in violent activities. And so it's not that, oh, you watch Pulp Fiction, therefore you go out and murder people. It's not that simple of cause and effect. It's much more, uh, I wonder in what way does the constant barrage of violent images and the ease with which we see people carry out violence without repercussion or even see it and see the repercussions, but then the, somehow the repercussions are glorified um, but- over generations and over years and um, and, and, and as we're saturated with these violent images on Facebook, even, you know, just pictures of, of actual, you know, cops shooting somebody or, um, you know, those world star hip hop videos, you know, of, of people getting their asses kicked. Does that somehow transform our disposition towards violence as such? And it's not to say, therefore, if you watch world star and you watch Pulp Fiction and you listen to this type of music and you go to these types of shows and you engage in these types of activities that therefore that is a recipe for you becoming, no, this isn't, we're not, this isn't a mechanistic view of the universe. You know, it's not like a clock where you wind it and this is what happens. But what I wonder is, is, is there a sense in which those things are necessary conditions, but that they're not necessarily sufficient conditions towards contributing to this sort of thing? And I think this film, whether intentionally or not, sort of implicates film to an extent because Matt, he lives the fantasy. That's his world. He lives in the fantasy and he loves usual suspects, pulp fiction. You know, he loves films like Irreversible. Most people probably don't know what Irreversible is, but that's a film that is you know, a pretty brutal fucking movie made by a pretty brutal fucking film director. So clearly there's this element of brutality that uh, defines this this logic of his disposition towards the world. So what I wonder is, is there a sense in which the film is kind of subtly implicating the effect, if you will, that film can have on us, that violent films can have on us? Um, not to say that it See, causes I- bullying per se, and, and that it, or I'm sorry, not to say that it causes um, school shootings per se, but to show that there is a, a power and uh, uh, with violence that we need to be aware of and take responsibility for and and wield appropriately. See, I I think the interesting thing though is I think there's a very obvious counter argument to that, which is. Something I've heard Darren Aronofsky actually talk about, which is the idea that actually what's more troubling is the sanitization of violence. The idea that we make violence cartoonish and easy to digest, and so we don't show the true repercussions of violence. You could argue someone like Tarantino actually shows you real repercussions of violence, whereas like, you know, something like, I don't know, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, something like Fast and the Furious doesn't show you any repercussions of violence. Mm. I mean, you know, people are doing all sorts of crazy things there. Where, you know, it's like the rock gets blown out of a, you know, um, a, a, a window and falls four stories, lands on a metal car and is fine. Right. You know, in theory, that's actually more troubling because it's not actually getting you to connect with the real repercussions of what violence does. Whereas, I mean, yeah, you I, become I disembodied. Well. You become disembodied yeah. a little bit. You know? One of the real 
um, important moments of my life, I think, a real kind of loss of innocence was when I watched Saving Private Ryan when I was 11 or 12. And that was a really important experience for me because it was the first time that I actually was confronted with what the idea of real war atrocity might actually look like and the idea of what true horrific violence would be. And I was a kid who grew up watching a lot of kind of like old 50s and 60s World War II movies where people got shot and they fell down. Mm. And it was, but it was, it was shocking to me that moment when I was really confronted by, you know, people who had like intestines hanging out and people who had been chopped to bits by, you know, uh, you know, machine gun fire and who were, you know, horrible, you know, people dying really horribly and brutally. And that was a really important experience for me in my life because it was that moment when I saw, I was able to realize there's a very big difference between what real horrific violence is and what sort of fake violence is. And, and I think the problem is people want to put violence into one category. And the interesting thing about, say, a filmmaker like Tarantino is Tarantino has degrees of how he utilizes violence within his film, often within the same film. So, for instance, Django Unchained uses violence at times to create a really brutal harsh feel to the audience where the audience feels sickened and disgusted by what they're seeing yeah. but then we'll also use violence as a cathartic um uh, agent of vengeance yeah so like you've got the mandingo uh, fighters who are fighting you've got the dogs that are attacking the slaves that would be the first that would fit in the first category but then you've got the end yeah. scene when Django sort of gets his vengeance and gets his freedom and becomes the hero um, that's kind of the latter. That's the the cathartic. Yeah, and he very much uses one narratively to inf- to inform on the other. But it's interesting when you hear people criticize the film, they don't acknowledge the idea that there's different forms of violence within it. So they try to rope the fight of the Mandingo fighters in as some kind of violence to be enjoyed, which I don't think at all is what the film is going for. And I think that's the interesting thing is like by bringing up this point, one of the things that you're doing is you're also, you know, we also have to acknowledge the idea that violence exists as different forms within different story stories as being used in different narrative modes. And so Are there irresponsible uses of violence in films? Absolutely. But not all film violence is created equally. And so and I and I think so. I think I think it is an interesting point that that you're bringing up. But at the same time, what I would say is that to me, the much harsher violence the film portrays is actually the the violence that's perpetrated against the characters. And to me, that acts far more as an obvious uh, implication in terms of part of their disillusionment and break from reality, and the films simply equal something as, as as a solacing point and a world that makes a sort of more simple and easy sense to them. And whether you want to implicate that as some kind of reason or some kind of responsibility, I guess I can't stop you. But to me, that is a that is very much an end point rather than a causational point. Hmm. Yeah, actually, I think what you said was was kind of what I was trying to aim at with the idea of being responsible in the ways that we articulate violence. But um, even with that said, I, I still wonder, and I don't know, I don't have an answer. I, I'm I don't have an answer for anything in life, Kier. All I do is ask questions. Um, they may come in the form of statements, but trust well, that's me, that's still that's the questions. that's the use um, of being a philosopher, Austin. Is you could just fucking ask questions. I, I know, I love it. Um, 
But it's like, so um, did I, you ever see, there's that bit in Family Guy where they go to, like, see, like, uh, uh, an exhibition with, like, Peter's um, uh, ancestors. And it's like, like, oh, your great, great, great uh, uncle was a famous Irish philosopher. And then it comes, cuts to, uh, uh, Peter, when are you going to go and get a job? And he just stops and goes, why? <laughs> you know? That is me, my friend. Um <laughs> Yeah, I still wonder to what extent and under what conditions and if it's the case that and how it's the case that 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 violence just as such, even our responsible handlings of violence in an age where media reproduces these images so ubiquitously and so much, even the cathartic release and use of violence at the end of Django, I think that that still affects us at an unconscious level in a way that I'm not sure is the best for human sociality, for human development. I'm not sure. I don't know. But I wonder. Well, here's my question, but, but, Austin. Well, hold on I'm, real quick. I'm, I'm, but, don't, don't forget your question. Don't forget your question. But I was yeah. going to say, but real quick then, the thing I don't want to, to, to err to the side of, and this needs to be clear, is I'm not saying that I'm necessarily therefore opposed to violence as such. Because I do understand that under certain circumstances, violence is necessary. I think even... The, what, what, what just happened with us in that little exchange where you tried to interrupt me and I said, hold on, those are acts of violence in a sense. Now, they're not egregious acts of violence, but they are. When you interrupt somebody, when you cut somebody off on the road, are they those are acts of linguistic Austin? violence or symbolic violence. And, and I think violence, and you've said this before, but it exists on a spectrum and it's about degrees and intensities of violence. So I'm just more interested in – and, and how do we fucking comport ourselves and, and what responsibility should we have? Like in the ideal society, would we make shitloads of films about people killing each other? No, because hopefully the idea of like having to kill each other in order to survive doesn't exist. So the need for cathartic vengeance doesn't even exist. And so we would live, we would live in a higher ethical world that those, those things wouldn't even matter to us because they would have no meaning. But go ahead. What, what but was in your theory, question? death is always a part of humanity in some form or another because inevitably we all die. And people are not always going to die well because – you know, you could be walking down the street and a piano falls on you. It's not necessarily yeah. because somebody wished to do you violence. Violence is inevitably part of society. It's part of the world because part of humanity is death. So, you know, a piano falls on your head. You die horribly, not because society has not because somebody has not because of any real malice or anger or or, you know, reason for it. It's just you know, part of life is death. Yeah, I'm not sure that we should equate death with violence, though. And this is where we could get into that. You know, like, is the, the happenstance, circumstance... If you get squashed of, by a piano, though, that's yeah. still a violent death. Um, yeah, we would say that's a violent death, but I wonder if that's more, like, sort of metaphorical at, at the shock and horror of how gross it is. But I think from, like, a an actual, like, a... From a, from a real specific perspective, I don't know if I would call that violence. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if I think that maybe we should reserve the term violence for human to human like um, infringements on safety and comfort. I, I think okay. maybe, maybe I, I that have a question be for you, too, then. Yeah. Let's t let's take it out of my world of film and let's put it into a world that you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, mixed martial arts. Yeah. I'm glad why you did. I was thinking healthy, about this earlier. Yeah. Why would it be any healthier to, I mean, because at least if you're watching a film in theory, you know on some level that this is fake because it's been created outside. It's been created within, you know, a, 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 a set up um, orchestrated world. Whereas, you know, when you watch MMA, you're literally watching two human beings, you know, inflict pain on each other um, for entertainment. 
So yeah. why? So to me, in theory, if we're going down this route, you know, something like MMA is far more destructive than film is. Yeah. So the typical response, and I'm not saying this is my response, but the typical response is that it's, it's two free human individuals who are competing in a sport and the sport just happens to involve um, acts of combat. And uh, but there's mutual respect and it has skill, yada, yada, yada. I'm not so sure that I buy that argument because I think you're I think you're right, actually. And to be completely honest, I struggle with this. I struggle with this all the time. I go back and forth. I've gone months and months and months without um, participating in MMA, without training, without watching it and with actually kind of feeling like maybe it would be better if I didn't engage in these sorts of things because it does sort of violate certain social and ethical views that I hold. So I don't have an answer. Um, I think life is messy and it's complex and maybe I will come to a point where I where I am more pacifistic and I just say, fuck man, I can't participate in MMA in any in any way because I don't want to contribute to that. But then I would have to say maybe the same about football. You know, the the goal of tackling somebody is to literally violently drag that person to the ground. So I don't know. I really don't know. Well, I'm, I'm my not problem, my problem with a lot of this such because I think well, my, that's my concern with the my, my my concern with some of this too is that I think it's all well and good for us to sit here and have a philosophical theoretical debate on it. But the problem is anytime you also start talking about humanity as one um, singular force, you run into the problem that inevitably people have free will and they have their own right to do whatever they want. So it's kind of like, it's, it's the same, like, you know, it's, it's the same thing as, you know, smoking. Is there any purpose to smoking whatsoever outside of, you know, pretty much slowly killing yourself? No, but ultimately people are still going to want to do it. So you just got to let them do it. You know, it's kind of like, as long as you are not physically going out and harming somebody, I don't really see what the problem is. Not to mention, I think there is actually something to the argument of the idea of a cathartic idea of being able to experience violence in a setting that's safe without actually inflicting any harm on somebody else. And I mean, I, I, I think there's I think there's a reality to that in the sense that we if you think about it, we are. Uh, as a species, have a long, long history of violence, you know, in the terms of, you know, uh, mass war, genocide, you know, it's, it's the history of humanity is written in death and blood. And if you want my honest opinion, we probably live in one of the more, I know it sounds absurd, but globally peaceful times that has existed within humanity because, generally, there is more of an ability for people to have some sort of cathartic idea of violence outside of just going and experiencing it firsthand. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about that last point, but but I do I do think it's interesting to say that there is something useful about having that, that violent release. Um, so I think what I would say is that, sure, the way that we have progressed thus far, it does seem that violence can, maybe it does serve um, a cathartic purpose, maybe. Um, but nevertheless, I think we could be otherwise. I, I always think I mean, we, we can be otherwise. And so, I mean, so it's, got, it's interesting. I, I don't know. We've really gone on a big know. philosophical tangent. I would like to just go back to the film for a minute before, yeah. we, before we wrap up as well. Because of course, you know, and I said this at the beginning, and I really do think this, this is one of those films that I think should always be 
a point of inspiration for other filmmakers because, you know, it's somebody taking a small budget and doing something with a with a big idea and and pulling it off. Mm. And, you know, and I and I think, you know, I I mean, it's I mean, what what did what did uh, what did you make on it? from a sort of production level in terms of like how the, the ingenuity of how it was put together. I mean, that's, that's probably what I think is the most successful bit of this film. I think it's edited very well. Uh, like we talked about earlier, the formal use of the meta film within a film, the film that we're watching is the film that the, the main character is actually making. I think that that is handled really well. I like the use of handheld camera. I mean, it, it looks like, it looks like a found footage film. Um, I think the acting is really good. It, it seems like whoever created this film has a really nice grip over his craft. And and I I mean you uh, we generally attribute this to to the director. And so if it is mostly him, I don't know how much. I mean, like you said, there is no script. Most of it, all the scenes were just completely made up on on the fly. So. Um, that goes down to both Owen and Matt, and then I think I don't remember the the female actors' names, but uh, the Chrissy characters, and then the bullies and stuff like that. I mean, you know, all of them deserve their their, their kudos. I think it's a really well made film. I, I mean, I, I think this film is really actually one of those films that actually has amazing editing, sound editing. Um, the soundtrack is great. The music is really uh, well um, dispersed throughout. It's used nicely, and then I think uh, the visual editing is just I think it's phenomenal, and I think that's what actually makes the film work. By, by the way, too, I misspoke earlier. I said Sundance. It was actually a slam dance um, film. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I, I think the thing, too, that I, I, I wonder about this, though, is I wonder how sustainable this style is and whether it's something that mm. he'll have to move on from as a filmmaker in order to properly develop. Because um, he's made kind of one film since this called uh, Operation Avalanche, which is kind of a a moon conspiracy theory like movie set in like the 60s. And it's the same kind of like found footage style film. And you kind of wonder, I mean, I've not seen it. So and the reviews I read of it seem to be generally positive. But you kind of wonder how long you can keep doing that as a filmmaker. Yeah, that's a good point. That is actually a really good point. Um, I kind of feel like it might be like a one and done kind of thing, right? Like how many Dogma 95 films can you watch until you're like, cool, okay, I get it. It was a, an interesting experiment. It had its its day. But in 2018, other than in film schools, is the Dogma 95 thing as impactful and profound? I, I don't know. I mean, I like a lot of elements of Dogma 95. And for me, that's really my vibe. I, I love those kinds of movies. But yeah, I, I agree. Like, can you just make found footage films like this, low budget $10,000 films for the rest of your life and sustain a career with, and keep coming up with fresh ideas and fresh formal devices? I don't know. I don't know. It would or even a- like, obviously, Operation Avalanche is a slightly more, you know, high budget film, you know, with a, a slightly bigger concept. But is that is that style still sustainable? You know, is it because it, because there's only because, of course, the thing that is immediately true as well is it immediately is also a limiting style because you have to adhere to the logic of it and and it limits what you can mm. do in terms of using the camera as a storytelling device so, so do you think that means, the found footage film it has an expiry date i don't know because i don't think 
I don't think in theory anything I, I think the problem with the found footage is it's it's an excuse for an awful lot of terrible movies. I there's very few found footage movies I actually like mostly because I think it leads to lazy filmmaking. Right. And I think this is one of the few that I actually think works. And I don't think that there's an expiry date in so much as I think that there's always opportunity for people to come up with fresh takes on it. However, I don't necessarily think that it's sustainable as something as, as a sort of subgenre. Mm. I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, when you look at the, the really successful filmmakers that you have right now, I mean, they're constantly reinventing themselves, exploring different formal techniques and things like that. You know, I mean, like Quaron spent how many years developing technology and trying different things so he could do gravity. And it's a very different film than some of his previous films. Of course, it's still got his fingerprints on it. But it's a different film. It's not the exact same. I mean, look at Dunkirk, you know. Um, uh, Nolan is stepping outside of his comfort zone in a lot of ways. So it's important to kind of explore these different mediums and different things at an individual level and then also at like a sort of larger, broader, industry-wide level. Um, so well, I And it's know. also interesting because you look at, say, uh, the director of Paranormal Activity and how he's never directed another film. Um, since then, he's basically moved strictly into producing. Mm. Um, and part of it is because, I mean, as far as I understand, and I, I, I could be wrong because I think, I, I think I've, I've never fully looked into this. It's just a story I told, was that he did make a second film, but it was so bad that they basically – it just basically got shelved and they never released it. Interesting. Um, and then he had a lot of success through sort of producing – being a producer on things like, say, Insidious and stuff like that and just sort of basically left directing behind. Mm. But the problem was that once you were outside of the confines of this style that you saw in Paranormal Activity – um, this sort of reality style, and you had to tell a more traditional film story, it became, it, it became, it, it sort of failed to work, you know. But I, I think, I think the interesting thing with it is I do think that Matt Johnson is clearly very literate in film. Mm. He clearly has, um, I think, I don't think you can make a film this well-crafted and not have s some semblance of an idea of how to shoot a more traditional movie. I did just kind of hope he does. Did you see Operation Avalanche? I still have. No, I, have, I haven't seen it. Okay. Um, I only really found out about it even while watching, while, while doing some research on him last night. Um, so it, it's kind of one of those, those things that I just hope he's not someone who kind of disappears into e the ether because I think there's a, there's an interesting voice and a lot of interesting ideas in this film. And I hope it bears some kind of fruit in the end. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I, I had told you this and, and I can say this with as much kindness as possible. I had heard that he did fall into a little bit of some difficulties when he was in Los Angeles on the heels of this film that the sort of keys to the kingdom were given to him. And there was a steep learning curve, I'll say. So I haven't seen Operation Avalanche, but um, I agree. I hope that he hasn't – I don't think that he's a lazy filmmaker. So I think he hasn't. No, I think I mean, not at he, all. The dude's like 31 years old. When he made this movie, he was like 28 years old or something like that, you know, 20, 25 no, – 26. 20, 26 years old. I mean that's a baby in, in – the, the grand scheme of things of being an artist. So, well, and also, you know, you're 26, you make a 10 grand film that becomes like a huge sensation at this film festival. Kevin Smith, um, basically exec, you know, comes on board to executive produce it and distribute it. You know, you go to LA clearly thinking, okay, I know what I'm doing. And you're immediately met by 
film people. Sharks. People who are not <laughs> interested in fucking listening to some 26-year-old who thinks he knows shit who's never made right. what they would consider a real film. And that's the right. thing is if you've made one of these 10 grand like films that is a Sundance sensation or goes on Netflix, people will look down their nose at you because to them you've not made a real film. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and that's, that's the simple reality once you get out there. And if you start, you know, acting bigger than these people think you should – you know, it's it's a it's a tough world to negotiate to, to navigate. I mean, it's and it's it's fascinating, you know, because I've like I said before, I've I, I have friends who've been in the room with these big, powerful people when they make these decisions and they watch them fuck up movies because they can, right. you know, and that is mm-hmm. that's the simple reality of it. You are in a world of people who aren't cinephiles. They're not cinephiles. They're brand managers. And their immediate reaction is. I make how much money you had some rinky dink, like, you know, pseudo student film that did well. Don't fucking cross me. Yeah, I was in a meeting with the senior vice president at a major television network. And all he wanted to know about our television show was how did it replace a a super successful reality show that was exiting their network? How would it fill that gap and fill that void for the viewers? That's all he wanted to know. That was it. If we could sell him on that, then he would have bought our show. That was that was basically it. So it's a strange world, man. It's a strange world. I would like it to not be that way. I would love it for guys like for uh, for like Matt Johnson to just get funding to go do his passion projects or guys like Keir Seward to just get funding to go do their fucking passion projects forever. And maybe you don't make millions, but at least you can survive off of it and make a decent living. That would be the perfect I mean, idea you know, he's, he's the sort of guy who, you know, I'd, I'd, you know, love to see him get like, you know, I don't know, a $10 million budget or something like that to go just make something kind of interesting and cool. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I want to check out now. I've never seen Operation Avalanche, and I actually really want to see it now. Um... So it's got a lot of the same actors in it. The Owen actors in it. The girl that played yeah. Chrissy, I think her name is Krista. Um, I think she's in it. So it's got a lot of the same, and it's co-written by the same guy that wrote the story or came up with the story for the Dirties. So it's obviously people that he knew from back home in Canada that maybe went to York University, which is I know where he went to film school. So it's probably people that he he studied with, that he worked with, that he's friends with. And I always love those sorts of success stories it's like the australian group with like the edgerton brothers and all those motherfuckers that are all kind of working uh, by, by the way i'm just gonna i'm, I'm so. gonna i want to bring just before we i want to bring up something very very peculiar yeah which is i don't know have you ever watched the trailer for the dirties no okay there is a thumbnail on the trailer for the dirties. go on youtube there's a thumbnail of the character of Krista, the the hot girl who like Owen's into, um, where she's like flashing the camera and she's got like a black bra and she's like flashing the camera. And it is a shot that is in the trailer, but at no point appears in the film. Huh. And it is like, and I'm just kind of, I just sit there and I go like, this is, and I, I get that obviously uh, trailers happen, things get cut that aren't in there previously. But I'm also kind of like this film would have been finished and gone to slam dance before it ever got distribution and a trailer would have been out. So in theory, I assume this shot existed, but I feel like it's just been stuck in this trailer so that they could make a thumbnail with a girl in a bra to get people to watch the trailer. But it's such it's just a weird, weird moment. That's called genius marketing, my friend. (laughs) Genius marketing. Okay, I call it. I call it deception, motherfucker. Is what <laughs> exactly. I call it. It's the same thing, man. 
Um, okay. So yeah, so I would, I would highly recommend the dirties and it seems like you would as well. Yeah, I would, but I will say this and I know that like, I normally am not really into the, uh, trigger warning sort of thing, but I will say it, it, it is a pretty disturbing film and it is dealing with something that I know is a very sensitive topic for people right now. So, um, if you're not inclined to wanting to expose yourself to something that has to do with school shootings, just beware. I don't know, which is, which is interesting though. Cause I feel like, again, I feel like if you explained this as a film about a disturbing film about a school shooting, I don't think it actually really describes what the film is like. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Which, which is, which is again, why I think this film is actually quite fascinating. Agreed. planning a school shooting. You want us to kill anybody for you, or? Good luck with your shooting. Don't tell anybody. I won't. Okay, cool. So, uh, next week, we get to find out what our, um, what, uh, who, who won our Oscar bet, but, uh, what else are we going to be doing next week, Austin? We are going to be watching a movie, Kier, and I figured we would go down the art house foreign film rabbit hole for uh, uh, an episode or so because you know we did like, you can't see me right now but i'm and... rolling my eyes <laughs> um this is a film that i don't think you've seen because i think we've mentioned we've talked about it before but you can correct me it is the battle of algier okay no no, no i've never seen it obviously i know of it but i've never seen it yeah so it's a 1966 italian film based um around events in the uh this the during the algerian war and it's a film that for all intents and purposes, is considered like a masterpiece of um, of filmmaking. So yeah, we are going to check this. Film it's interesting because um, almost it, it it in theory it actually has some thematic similarities with this week's choice. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely, it does. Um, it, it I will say this: leftists love this movie. Let's just say that because it's about revolution. It's about uh, people power in a lot of ways. So uh, lefties, uh, people of my kin, um, love this movie. So uh, we'll, we'll dig, dig into it a little bit next week. But it's, it's much more. It's not commies. like a lefty propaganda film. It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderfully made uh, kind of old – what would you call it? Is it Italian neorealism film? So um, Yeah, probably yeah. it would kind of fit into that category. Yeah, so that's what we'll be watching next week. It's well. I I will say, is this um is this going to be one of those episodes where you suddenly start making me feel like I'm a Republican, Austin? <laughs> you know what? It might it might be it might be one of those. No, I I think you're going to dig this one. I do. You know, I suddenly suddenly I'll sound like Jordan Peterson talking about Marxists. <laughs> Damn postmodern neo Marxists, cultural Marxists everywhere, exactly. crazy leftists, radical ultra leftists. Urgh. I'm not going to use whatever fucking pronoun you want, Austin. Zier, please. <laughs> All right, cool. So in the meantime, if you haven't liked and subscribed to us, please do on iTunes. Uh, rate us. Give us a review. Um, if you want to check out more of my work, you can do so on com, or you can check me out on Instagram at Breaking Point Flicks. Uh, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. And yeah, that's it. Communism will win. 